If you're the only one in your book club who wants to read books that will change your life, you need a new book club. And we think you found it. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And can we be the first to say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. We're back in what we are affectionately calling part two of Genesis. We are now getting into the patriarchs. And when we left off, Abraham had just gotten kicked out of Egypt for lying about his wife, Sarai. But he wouldn't have had to lie if he had not gone to Egypt in the first place. And that's just what happens when you follow your plan and not God's plan. And then he also wouldn't have had to wouldn't have gone to Egypt if he had just trusted God about the famine and listened to what God was telling him to do. So this is a common theme in the Bible. We're going to see it all the way through that we focus on mistakes, right? That shines a light, though, on how God wants to change things in your life and how they turn. These Bible characters turn. So there's a bigger story. It's all weaved throughout the whole Bible. And it's a story about how God is going to eventually restore the world to him through Jesus. Abraham has clearly fallen into a pattern of I see, I take, it's a mistake. I fall, repent, and I return to God. He trusted God in his calling. And then he doesn't trust God and he trusts himself. And it's going to happen again, forewarning. But this, there's another theme here of him and Egypt and actually Genesis in Egypt. So he didn't trust God in the famine and he went to Egypt. And this theme is going to be played out again and again. And going to Egypt, I've said it before, is never a good thing for the Israelites. So another famine and bad choices will lead Abraham's great grandsons to Egypt. I'm talking about way Towards the end, couple generations later. I'm talking about Jacob's sons. And the Israelites end up slaves in Egypt. And then they get out of Egypt because God sends plagues and Pharaoh freaks out. Sounds familiar. We just had this kind of plague where Pharaoh realized the plague was put on him because uh, Sarah was Abraham's wife, not sister. And then the Israel's Israelites leave richer than when they went into Egypt, just like Abraham. This is what's going to happen to the Israelites after being slaves in Egypt. When they leave, Pharaoh is so freaked out. He just says, go take what you want. And they literally take gold and silver out with them as they leave. All right. So that's all your foreshadowing. Susan's getting way ahead of us. I'm way ahead of us, but But I want to make a point here because sometimes God does this crazy thing to further complicate a message in the Bible and he flips a pattern to emphasize what he is trying to say. So I just told you about this pattern of making mistake, going to Egypt, God having to work through the Pharaoh and release people. But Pharaoh is definitely clearly the bad guy. All right. Well, in the New Testament, way, we way, all know way ahead of us. Yeah, way ahead of us. We all know the story that jo- that Herod is trying to kill all the two year old boys because he knows that a king, king is going to come from them, coming. and he feels threatened. And Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, but instead of Egypt being the bad place, it's a safe place. So he's like, "This is the this is the time. It's well, going to be different this time." Exactly, and this is what he's trying to say to them, Joseph. Of Mary flee from Herod, who's acting like Pharaoh. So instead of Pharaoh in Egypt being the bad person in the bad place, acting evil, Herod in Jerusalem is the bad guy in what should be a safe place, but has become an unsafe place. That is so interesting. And he probably knew that one day we were going to be looking back on this thing, trying to see what we can learn. Well, I think he's revealing self. 
something. Yeah. Exactly. God is revealing that Jerusalem, and he's trying to say something to the Jews. Jerusalem had become worse, more dangerous for God's people and his son than Egypt ever was. Wow. So just a little backstory on kind of patterns in the Old Testament that lead to sometimes a flip of the pattern in the New Testament, which is really cool. And again, remember, these things aren't apparent to us, but to the Jews who were so steeped in the word of the Old Testament and had it memorized, they would have seen these startling differences. And I want to point that out because I'm going to cover something at the end of, I think it is next week, yeah, about Melchizedek that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but would have been a really big deal. To them culturally, and that's why it's important yes, to study this because culture. they knew God's word. So, as we begin this chapter, Abraham has been sent back on the road and will begin to reap the consequences of his bad choice. This is a really great lesson to us God will use everything for his good, even our mistakes. However, he doesn't negate the consequences. And in this case, because we are at the beginning of the world and we are with the first family, the consequences are still rippling out today. So the first consequence we have is what I call too much too soon. Chapter 13, verse one. So Abraham went up to Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Remember how had Abraham become wealthy? That was Pharaoh. Yeah, Pharaoh had treated him well, which means he had access to all things that would grow his herd and prosper his business. It was not the growth that God had planned for him. He took things into his own hand. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he'd first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. I love this because Abram goes back. He realized I was I was not line. camping out with God. Yeah. I was on my own path. And he goes back and he recommits. He goes back to where God had appeared to him and to the land that God had promised him. This demonstrates his conviction about not trusting God in the famine and lying. He was probably also thankful that God blessed him despite his mistake. Thank God for that altar. Oh, yeah. He goes back to the altar and to calling on the name of the Lord. What Abraham did here is a perfect example of how to get back on the path to good. Remember in Genesis 4, we looked at the path to good and evil. We can get off the wrong path at any time. And that is exactly what Abraham does right here. He goes back to what he knows is right, the place where he called on the name of the Lord and he built that altar. We can go back to the word of God in the Bible. We can go back to church. We can go back to that one wise friend we have that we know speaks truth. And we can go back to any commitment we made to God and renew it. it you do not have to be stuck on the wrong path. And and I think that's a really good point about why we were built the way that we're built to do things in community, why we're not built to do this all, all, all alone, because other people are almost like guardrails in your life. And so you kind of need accountability sometimes because we can veer off the path and you need those relationships Uh, Like you said, that one friend who will tell you the truth all the time, or you just need to put guardrails on your life so that when you notice yourself, oh, I got a little off track there. I lied about my wife and now I'm in a little bit of trouble. Let me go back. You need that person who you can say, hey, can you help me? Hold me accountable here. I'm off my diet. (laughs) Hold me accountable. (laughs) Get me back on. 
you know, it was so funny. Our sermon today was you have to know yourself and know your enemy to win the war. And this is the same in the path. You have to know yourself and what tempts you and you have to know the enemy and how it gets to you. And that is exactly what that resource that we will have it in the show notes again says, you know, clearly Eve and Cain and every example we've had, the enemy used their weaknesses and he was very subtle. And when we know those in ourselves and we know how he works, that's how we can, like you said, know I'm getting off. I need to run back to the word, a friend, church, accountability, whatever it is. Yeah. And to have that person in your life and expressly give them permission right. to hold you accountable. Exactly. So Abraham erected that altar that helped him remember where he was and get him back on his path. But we're not really in the habit of running around town erecting altars today. <laughs> we get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Can't be put up a big sign on the no. side of Dale Mabry. <laughs> so what do you do then? How do you how do you erect figuratively alters in your life so that you can get yourself back on the path. What do you do? Right. So for me, I, I write them down and then I, I make a point to tell them to people. So if you tell your stories over and over again, you kind of find who any speechwriter will tell that, you know, write it down and then speak it to someone and shorten it up. And, and, and I know mine, my first altar was a cardiac arrest I had when I was 17. And that's when I really feel like I truly met the Lord and I will never forget it. And I have told him, million people. And, um, you know, I, I did go to church before then, but it wasn't till I was alone in that emergency room that, and I, you know, I feel like I met the Lord and I knew if I lived, they were beating on my heart and everything. I knew if I lived, God had something he wanted me to do. And every heart surgery I've had since I always go into it thinking, okay, where have I been? Where am I now? And if I come out of this, what do you want me to do? And, you know, it's been a blessing for me. Actually, it sounds terrible. It sounds like a very risky way to live. But for me, it's kept me very focused and always treasuring every moment and knowing. The second one, the second altar I have in my life was a career choice. Mark and I made a change. He was practicing law and I was in banking. We had our first child and this opportunity came up um, to start something here in Florida for Focus on the Family. And we took the leap and people told us not to. They said, this is the wrong time of your life. You know, you've just had one child. You don't leave the these careers of profitability to do this. And, but we knew that we, that literally God we wanted called. us to do that. Yeah. We were called, told a million people that story. It's, it's a marker for me. I, when I'm discouraged about things or feeling I have to do something else or a new calling or another calling, I think, okay, well, God got me through that one. And it builds confidence. It's kind of like finding your why. So you're that's a that's a common thing today in business from a Simon Sinek speech. It's like starting with the why, you know, your why. And not only do you know your why, you've told all kinds of people in your life your why. And so they can help point you back to that. Exactly. And I'll tell you, my third one was adopting two older children from Russia, which was never on my radar. Adopting was, but never did I think it would come about the way it did. And that's another long story. But in all three of these cases, my top three, the the greatest alters in my life have been the hardest things that I've ever had to do. And when I thought about writing this down, I thought, well, oh gosh, there's a lot of other ones on that, but they weren't as hard. And therefore the altar is not that big. And that's why I say for anyone out there who is 
suffered or gone through something, this is your biggest altar. And write it out. Look for God in it. What was he doing? What did he teach you? What he's going through it. What what did he do to uniquely position you for something else? And um, and remember those. So um, I have a lot more, but these three are the are the, were the tough ones that I learned the most about myself, struggled the most, relied on God the most, and uh, grew so, my faith. So for you, you're using your greatest significant moments in life as alters. You're basically marking a timestamp on them and then learning from it. Yeah. They changed my life and they built, I think the big thing too, is they built my confidence in God and my faith in him because all three of those, there was nothing I could have done. And this is the pattern we see when Abraham trusts God, he realizes God is doing this when he doesn't trust God and he does it, he fails and he gets in trouble. And that's the thing. All three of those, I couldn't have done those. And that's why it's faith building. It was the Lord. It was not me. And for me, it's about just paying attention to those signs that God's giving me in my life. And sometimes those signs do just come straight from the word of God when I'm reading it. But a lot of times they don't. And here's an example. One time um, I was at a church service and I was in a point in my life where I was really struggling with my job. Mm -hmm. It was getting really hard. There were a couple really difficult situations going on. And I was at a church service and I we were having communion and I had lost the little cup, the little cup. I could <laughs> not wine, find little that little cup. cup. Yeah. So I, I couldn't have communion, although my husband went and grabbed me another cup. Well, then I was at work, getting to work a couple of days later and something fell out of my purse and it was that cup. And I just, in that moment, I was like, okay, God, I hear you. You're here with me. And I just took that little cup and I put it on my desk. And it was because I was in a place where do I need to stay at this job or do I need to leave this Mm, job? And it was like, okay, God, I hear you. This is where you want me. Okay, I'm here. So I use those kinds of, I do set up actual altars, I suppose, but they're just little tiny things that nobody else would notice except for me. It's so funny because, you know, he says, this is, this is my cup. So was he saying this job that you can't, that you can't, that's driving you crazy. This is my cup. I'm going to do it. And this is where I want you right now. Wow. Oh, I love stuff like that. Okay. Keep going. Verse five. Now, Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they had stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. All right. We're in consequence one, too much, too soon. And here we have it. The problem is this. Lot also prospers in Egypt. And now they're trying to travel together. And the land, remember, they're herders. So they've got tons of cattle and sheep. I don't know what else they have. It can't. The land that they're roaming through cannot support both families. The problem also is this. Proximity breeds conflict. Consequence one from the trip to Egypt is too much too soon. Would their flocks have grown so fast in the famine? No. Abraham advanced his business his way by going to Egypt instead of God's way. Would more time have brought better leadership from Lot and less quarreling? Probably. Who knows? Maybe Lot was too young to experience such abundance. This consequence is going to mushroom into a sulfuric atomic bomb in just six chapters. Uh, You're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Exactly. All right. Lack of discernment or God opportunity is what I titled the next part. Was this a lack of discernment or a God opportunity? Verse eight. So Abram said to Lot, 
let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Why? Why would Abraham, who took such great care to bring his brother's son with him, be so open to parting? Is this a lack of discernment on Abraham's part or is God revealing something to Abraham? Well, I think about your point of it being too much too fast. I mean, this happens a lot of times in business when a company just grows too fast and they can't keep up with it because they don't have enough employees. And I wonder if they just didn't have enough people to handle all those flocks and they just needed to separate because, I mean, it was probably some drama going on with all all the workers as well as it was affecting their own relationship and they needed some time and space. But maybe they just needed to separate all the, I guess, if they didn't have enough people. They're just eating too much grass. You got to spread out. (laughs) There was not enough food for them all. No, truly, truly. They had to. Oh, all the livestock were eating too much grass. They were eating too much grass. And so they needed to separate. But I do believe it is the latter, that God was showing Abraham something. And here are the clues as to why I think that. Abraham had just recommitted his life and was calling on the name of the Lord just four verses before this. So again, he's walking with the Lord, you know, and it's kind of contrary that he would say this because remember when God called him out, we don't know if God said, oh, and bring Lot with you. He just said, take your wife. And so was it a mistake for Abraham to actually bring Lot? I don't know. But he's walking with the Lord right now. And he says to Lot, you know, hey, maybe we should split. Then there's this hint that separation was already in the works. In chapter 12, when Abraham leaves Ur and initially sets out for Canaan in verse five, he takes his wife, Sarah, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated. They were all kind of grouped together. So maybe Lot was young. I don't know. Maybe what he had was Abraham's too. I don't know. But in this chapter 13, when he sets out from Egypt, it says he takes his wife and all he had and Lot with him. And Lot, who is traveling with Abraham, also had flocks, herds, and tents. So all of a sudden we know that Lot has become independent. He has his own stuff and his belongings are listed. There is also this new applied separation of households. And you have to wonder if it involves more than just stuff. In other words, people. If, if Lot now has his own herders, his own servants, his own tent makers, who knows what's involved in all that, his own cooks, is he teaching different things? So we know that a servant of a household usually adopted whatever their master said or did. And perhaps Lot is already showing signs of doing things his own way. Lastly, and this I just implied, is there also a spiritual separation? Nowhere does it say that Lot recommitted to the Lord when they went back to Bethel. It just says Abraham committed to the Lord. And what happens next gives us another clue. Lot has a choice between two paths and he chooses the darker one. Verse 10 Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. Here's where we see his heart. Lot looks around and he wants the goods. He doesn't give God a thought. It doesn't say he prayed. He It just says he looked up and he saw and he took. Lot knew 
knew that God's path was in Canaan. He knew. He knew Canaan was the promised land. He was part of Abraham's household. He had been told this, the warning sign. Picture yourself on the path here. (laughs) There's a warning sign. Okay, your uncle is giving you a choice. Canaan, God, this way. Everything else, that way. And he chooses to leave Canaan, the land God promised will be a blessing. We can assume that Lot's choice is because he is not on board with Abraham's commitment to God. And he wants to do his own thing. Maybe that, you know, 18-year-old, I want to do it my way. However, had Abraham not lied about Sarah, perhaps Lot would not have become so prosperous and they could have stayed together longer, giving Abraham more time to influence Lot. Or because Lot lacks discernment, does this give Abraham an opportunity to be free of the influence and responsibility of Lot and his people? Well, he eventually goes back and gets him later. So it's not like he just wants to be free for the sake of being free. He loves him. He He cares about him. He's his nephew. He loves him. But for whatever reason, he gives Lot this choice. And we know he was just calling and worshiping on the Lord that we have to assume, okay, Abraham's heart is in the right place. Lot's is in the wrong place. He has discernment and Lot's just didn't. So here's the message. Stop and ask God, God, can I do this? God, can I have this? God, do you want me to spend this money? God, do you want me to go on this trip? He's he's a loving God. He wants you to have good things. It's not that the things that you have are bad. It's, is this what God wants for you in your life at this time? And it was actually in one of our Bible studies that we did together that prompted this podcast that I had one of our, you know, girls ask me, you know, she said she had, she was really involved in church and loving it. And da, da, and she said, I, I've been given this other job offer. Should I go? And it's really hard. It's hard to discern this. You have to ask yourself, okay, I have fellowship. I have community. I'm growing in Christ for the first time ever. Can I handle pulling myself out of that? And here, Lot is clearly told Canaan and God are this way, but he looks up and he sees something else and he takes it. And so his heart is revealed. And maybe that was the test. You know, maybe God had told Abraham, test him, test him because he can't keep pulling. He can't hold you back. I'm going to make you a great nation. And so he's either on board or on. I don't know what the conversation was, but I do want to tell you that Sodom and Gomorrah are located to the east of the Dead Sea. Um, and Canaan is to the west of the Dead Sea. So just, so you know, locations. All right. Now, temptation, my next, my next subhead in this is called temptation and bad choices lead to depraved places. Maybe not at first. Remember on the path, the first mistake may not be a biggie. The second may be worse. It just spirals down. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. All right, here's Lot's character assessment at this point. Lot looked around at what the world could offer. He is lazy. He is not bothered. He is not at all bothered by the strife of his employees. He let them quarrel instead of managing the situation. He should have stepped in with his herders and Abraham's herders and led his team of servants, herders, whatever they are, better. He's selfish. 
He took a choice he should have deferred to his uncle, seniority and wisdom. In other words, Abraham offered him, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. That was clearly a test. Abraham was not going to Sodom. Right. <laughs> he knew where he was going. And, 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 and I think that was a test. Lot should have said, no, uncle, I will follow further behind you or I will go to this part of Canaan. Will you, you know, somewhere he could, where he could have still had probably community with Abraham, Abraham periodically, but he he was selfish. He he took what Abraham offered. He jumped at it. He looked up. He said, oh, great. I'm going over there. He was also, lastly, undiscerning. He chose a place that was geographically rich, but culturally depraved. And that is the big heart revealer to me. Well, and he also wanted to go into the city, which is just a much easier life than it is oh, yeah. living in tents selfish. in the wilderness. He wanted to, he didn't want to roam around anymore. He wants a dwelling and he's going to get that dwelling. All right. The question I say I would ask is when you look up, like Lot did. What do you look for? When you see something tempting, do your eyes linger or do you flee? Do you fall in line? Is it so hard? Yeah, no, I mean. Don't, you don't even have to look up far now. You just open your computer, open your phone. So much to look at. I think that that's hard. And some things are really big, significant things that you're talking about, but other things are not. And it's like, yeah. what? it's not necessarily a bad thing, but if God told you no, then right. it's no. Right, right. All right, carry on. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted with him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre of Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. Another altar. So we have that. that sense. And I do think this is very sweet. I think I think Abram probably brought Lot out of Ur because he and Sarah did not have children. And we're going to see this pattern. He's always thinking in the back of his head, is this the child? Is Am I going to need this one to be my inheritance? And Lot would have been his inheritance. His heir had there not been an heir. And I think it would have been hard for him to let Lot go. This was his brother's nephew. His brother had died. He obviously adored this kid. And I see God comforting him and reasserting, hey, look around all this land I'm going to give you and to your offspring. You're going to have offspring. AKA Lot is not your offspring and walk the length and breadth of the land, which is so what I used to do to my kids, you know, when they get distracted about something, okay, go take a walk. Mm-hmm. It's I know <laughs> your, your heart hurts. I know your heart hurts. It's going to be okay. I'm here. And he sends Abraham on this walk around this land. And then Abraham's heart must have been appeased and he must have felt good about this test that God asked him. He must have felt better about the way Lot responded to it, even though he knew it was wrong because he felt the comfort of the Lord. And so once again, it's an altar for him. It's a, it's a, I have confidence in you, God. I trust you, God. I'm going to remember this no matter what happens to Lot. I give him to you and you're going to take care of And I think it's also important to note that in the beginning of verse 14, it says that the Lord was talking to Abram Mm -hmm. and that's a result, a direct result of him calling on the name of the Lord earlier in the chapter. And it doesn't say that about Lot. He never Mm -hmm. stops and calls on the name of the Lord. He never asks God what to do. And so thereby God never talks to him. Right, right. So we're back in Canaan. Abraham is back where he should have never left. And he has chosen what Lot didn't. 
Lot looked out across the land and saw the lure of the city. Abraham trusted God and looked up to him and chose to go back to Canaan. Here's my character assessment then. At first, Abraham did lack trust. Um, Like I mentioned, perhaps he didn't trust that God would really provide that heir. That may be why he brought Lot to begin with. Uh, famine came and he left Canaan. Pharaoh looked dangerous, so he lied about Sarah. That's all in the beginning, a, a, a definite character assessment of yes, he lacks trust. However, he is faithful. He returns to God and he pursues what God's God wants. He is honorable. He doesn't want to quarrel with family and he makes efforts at peace. Sometimes this is going to hurt him. He is also generous. He let Lot choose. And again, like I said, it was a test, but nowhere did it say he had a problem with that. He doesn't hold what's been given to him so close that it becomes an idol to him. He trusts God in that. The point of the whole thing to me is not everything that looks good is good for you. So what is it in your life that maybe it's not even a bad thing, but that God is calling you to give up, whether you're in a a season where he's asking you to go somewhere or do something different than what you're doing right now, what does God need you to just remove from your life right now? Is it social media? Is it a friend who a is job maybe pulling like you, you down? Contemplating? Could it be a job? What is that thing for you that you need to call on the name of the Lord and then listen to what he's saying for you to do? And trust that whatever he's God's going to replace it with is going to be better. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.